Hey there, and welcome to Upfront, a podcast that features conversations with Connecticut-based top performers who represent the very best in their field and how they are making an impact in their industry and here at home in Connecticut. Thanks for listening. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to Upfront. I hope you are having a nice summer so far. Now, if you're from Connecticut, I'm willing to bet you've heard of Lyman Orchards. They're famous for their apple pies, but if you make your way to Middlefield, Connecticut, you'll be amazed at the sprawling property that is more than 1,100 acres of scenic farmland. I'm not exaggerating when I say this, but if you visit and experience the pick your own at the top of the apple orchards, The views are breathtaking and picturesque. The New England countryside, rolling hills, it's something you have to do. Now, if we rewind back to 1741, colonial farmer John Lyman and his wife Hope could not have envisioned the complex and diverse enterprise that would evolve from their purchase of a 37-acre parcel of land. Today, it has grown by leaps and bounds, Lyman Orchards is one of the most popular family attractions in New England, with a retail shop on site known as the Apple Barrel, three golf courses, pick-your-own orchards, and on-site events, and so much more. Through a history spanning 10 generations, the Lyman family heritage was founded upon a commitment to preserve their land for future generations, using a combination of determination, innovation, and adaptation attributes that still hold true today. Even after 280 years, Lyman Orchards continues to evolve while maintaining this commitment. Today, members of the 8th and 9th generations of the family are directly involved in the business, and that's just who we'll be talking with on the show. John Lyman III is the Executive Vice President of Lyman Orchards and is a member of the eighth generation of the Lyman family that has been farming in Middlefield since 1741. John Lyman, welcome to Upfront. Good morning, Derek. Nice to uh, be with you. Okay, so I uh, always ask this question of each and every guest. Where are you at this exact moment in time? You mean location-wise or headspace? Uh, we'll get into the headspace stuff later, but location-wise. Okay, I am in uh, the, the center of the universe here in Middlefield, Connecticut. Um, I'm in my office, which is 10 South Street, and um, Middlefield, as its name would imply, is right smack in the middle of Connecticut. We're halfway between um, Middletown and Meriden, halfway between Hartford and Haven. Kind of gives you a sense of where we are, not Five miles off of 91 as the crow flies. There you go. And I I don't have to ask this, but I think I will. You grew up in Middlefield, correct? I did. I did. I was born, actually lived in Durham for about a year. Mm-hmm. And then we moved to Middlefield, back to the farm. Um, and uh, I don't remember living in Durham, but uh, they tell me it was a beautiful house there. And um, But yeah, I've been here all my life. What was life growing up like back then uh, compared to, you know, maybe today? How would you describe growing up during your childhood um, in Middlefield? Well, at that time, we we still had a dairy. Um, So we had both orchards and a dairy farm. 
So I grew up, uh, actually had a couple cows that I raised as part of a 4-H project and uh, actually milked them every day. I had one cow I milked every day and had a small milk route on Lyman Road. Uh, I think I had five customers. My best customer was my mother and my grandmother. Um, but um, no, it's, so that's changed because the dairy is, has, has since gone and, and in pl place of that, we've, we've added golf courses. So today, much different than when I grew up and uh, the orchards at that time were mostly wholesale uh, and we certainly have diversified from that as well, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But um, it was a great, you know, growing up in a small town, um, it, was, it was very, everybody knew you. Um, school wasn't very big. Uh, we actually regionalized uh, with Durham in early 19, like 1971, 72. So I think my class may have been one of the, one of the first that went all four years to the regional high school. Um, so Durham's a little larger than Middlefield was at that time and still is a little larger, but, uh, still is regional school system 13 and is well-respected throughout the state as a, as a really good, good, uh, school system. And, and you mentioned, um, you were involved in 4-H, um, is that, was that through, throughout high school or your childhood? Yeah, probably about four or five years. I think I got involved probably around sixth or seventh grade and um, maybe a little earlier. And then by the time I got to high school, um, started playing sports and kind of that kind of went, went by the wayside. And um, you know, I played soccer, basketball, baseball. Um, that kept me busy. Um, so, um, yeah, so it's just kind of normal uh, from what every pretty much all my my friends were doing the same thing playing sports and trying to uh, do okay in school and and go from there what what position did you play for baseball was first baseman oh very cool yeah yeah so we had some good we had some good teams we had uh, the, the middlefield rockfall had a really good uh, little league system and intermediate league system and uh, we had some good ball players that came out of that area and then Durham had some good ball players too so 1972 the cog and won the state championship Championship for class small, class S, and interesting they just won it the other night. So uh, first championship for the boys uh, baseball team since 1972. Oh wow! So <laughs> a lot happening in Middlefield. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> no, that's very good. And, and a... I have to add the softball team. Uh, the girls won as well. So we had two uh, two you know back to back Friday night and Saturday uh, here at the uh, middle of June and. Uh, Oh wow! One, you know, so that was pretty exciting. Softball's won, I think, a total of five or six championships. They've had a more storied history. Very nice. And 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 playing sports, um, would you say that there was anything from that you took that helped you become who you are today? You know, was there anything you learned during sports that you don't really realize it then, but later on, perhaps? Absolutely. I um, learned, uh, obviously, the value of team teamwork. Um, I wasn't, uh, I was okay. I was good enough to make the varsity, but I wasn't a star. Um, so I typically would come off the bench, uh, fill in some time, but just being part of that. And, uh, you know, each member of the team was integral because the practice is being so important. Uh, my, my junior year, uh, basketball team won the state championship. Um, and being part of that was was very exciting, and I've taken a lot of lessons from that. 
And interesting, uh, in college, I played soccer in, in my senior year. We won the uh, championship for ECAC Division II, mm. um, went to Colby College. And uh, so very similar parallel uh, parallels between the two teams and the kind of dynamics and how it functioned. And uh, it just, um, again, taught me very valuable lessons about, you know, you don't have to be the star. You can be a key player and support player within within a championship team. And and then to um, to just kind of have have the experience of winning that and uh, just the, the confidence it builds as you go forward and seeing how much teamwork can overcome a lot of the uh, a lot of the obstacles. Yeah, everyone everyone plays their part, and this this might seem like a controversial question, but you're in middle field, right. Red Sox Red Sox or Yankee fan? Because you're um, like, <laughs> yeah, we're, we are. We're, yeah, I think uh, I think maybe the middle field Rockfall uh, area is maybe the epicenter. Um, yep. Here in Connecticut, but no, I'm a Red Sox fan. Um, I became a fan in 1967 at an age where most kids start to follow sports. Uh, yep that time I was 10 and, and, uh, just the excitement of having, uh, you know, I remember in fifth grade, we, uh, the teachers, and I think they're probably split in terms of who they were rooting for in a world series, which is St. Louis and in Boston, believe it or not. Uh, and, um, had to transistor radios cause they used to play the little or uh, world series games in the day, which, uh, mm-hmm. everybody sort of wishes they might go back to that, but it was fun. And, and, um, uh, so I just kind of started following and then, had a lot of lean years, uh, learned to, uh, um, I guess, put up with teams that somehow always found a way to lose until yeah. first 2004. So, <laughs> yeah, I feel your pain. I am a, I am a diehard Red Sox fan, have been since childhood. And, you know, for so long, we were just starved of that, that yeah. champion championship. And then when it happened, it was like, Wow, this is what it feels like. Feels great. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, good, a good chunk of my friends were Yankee fans, and of course they uh, they've had a much more uh, story history with with the championships. So, um, but yeah, you just um, you learn to deal with 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 that that uh, rivalry and and uh, actually have fun with it. Um, and it was good those days, you know, Carlton Fisk and Thurman Munson, and then later on. Uh, a Rod and uh, Jason Veritek, you know all those those great rivalries. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, okay, so childhood aspirations, right? You're you're in middle field. You're um, playing sports. You know, leading normal childhood. Um, did you always have plans to get involved? in the family business or, or was, you know, were there other things you wanted to pursue? Because you mentioned you, you went off to Colby college. Um, is that where you sort of found your calling, um, went to school to get the formal education or t- tell me about that experience? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess probably deep inside, if I'm truly honest, I probably, probably did want to come back to the farm when I was younger. Um, but I, I also felt I wasn't 100% sure and I wanted to be sure. So um, I went when I went to Colby, I um, you know majored in American Studies, which has nothing to do with agriculture, um, but has everything to do with, I think, communicating and, uh, and being able to express yourself, which in today's day and age with agriculture, as well as any business, you have to be able to communicate well. Mm-hmm. So um, those skills were learned then, but uh, I wasn't 100% sure and um, 
So I um, had through a few connections, uh, uh, I got to uh, have an opportunity to work in an orchard in Holland. Mm. Um, so as soon as I graduated, I went to went there. Um, I really went with the idea of traveling. I figured I'd work, and then, and I know about orchards because I grew up. I worked summers uh, in the orchard, so I was familiar with it. Um, but I really went to travel and. Um, you know, I spent a, a little over a year there, and I, what I found happening, first of all, the distance from home allowed me sort of reflect uh, and and kind of kept drawing me to it. But also um, working uh, with a, uh, the, the Dutch are, are some of the world's best fruit growers. So working, uh, learning hands-on, you know, that was really, as, as I often said, my horticultural formal education was working at an apple orchard in, in Holland. And um, in that year, I just became, it became very clear to me that I uh, wanted to come back to the business and I really enjoyed fruit growing. As much as I did it, worked it summers and I did enjoy it, I never quite felt it was a passion, but working the full year, seeing everything, how it all made sense when you yeah. saw a whole year together. Mm -hmm. And um, so I came back uh, in 1980, and I've been back ever since. Uh, one of the things my parents always told me is, you know, it's it's just be sure you're ready to you want to come back and make sure it's something you really want to do because it's going to be you know the ups and downs. You're going to have to be you know persevere through it. Uh, but if you really want to do it and you love it, it can be the most rewarding thing ever. And, and uh, that was great advice because I didn't want to just come in because, well, you, you know, it's the family business and you're expected to do it. I wanted to be sure I wanted to. And, and you know, as I talked to people in Holland and they would ask about, you know, where I was from, ask about what I did, what our family did. And I shared with them that the business uh, and what we did. They, they kept saying, well, of course, you're going back. Right. This is that's a great that's a great thing. I, I had third party endorsement all the time when I had these conversations and it. It just it it for me it clarified for me that it was a great opportunity and 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 um, and I've always sensed since coming back that you know I'm 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 the eighth generation um, to be farming in Middlefield uh, with the Lyman family and and I um, I really have an appreciation for the history and tradition mm. uh, and feel yeah feel responsible uh, to kind of be carrying it on and, and hopefully, um, you know, the plan is continue to pass it on to next generations. And uh, so, um, yeah, I think that perspective really helped me. And when I came back, I was fully, fully engaged and, and ready to uh, make a career of it. it. It's interesting, right? You have sometimes, sometimes you have to go away to come back, right? right? When it's, it's here for you at the whole time. And I, I find that really interesting. I, I don't know. It's I, I just finished a book called Finding Freedom. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's about a chef in um, Freedom, Maine, who wanted to always escape Freedom, Maine, because it was just such a small town, and wanted mm -hmm. to become a do wanted to become a doctor, and all of that didn't work out. And it was like my whole life has always been here before my eyes. So it's it's kind right. of funny. I, that, that I'm just seeing that parallel here too. Um, so I, I don't have to ask what your your parents did for work. Um, I, I think we know that. Um, uh, well, I'm interested. Let me just share with you a, a quick story with my mother. Um, sure. Because um, she she actually 
uh, is the genesis to what is now our largest growing part of our business, our wholesale pie business. Um, she became, um, back in 1971, we uh, built a new retail store and we built, it was, it's now, it's known as the Apple Barrel. Mm-hmm. And at, at that time, uh, we uh, decided to build an in-store bakery into the retail. And, um, you know, as my dad and mom had traveled to other locations where they had new retail facilities and talked to them, and they all said, you got to put a, re- you got to put a scratch bakery in. It's really the, the, the thing you need. So, um, you know, flash forward to a week before we're ready to open back in August of, I think, uh, 1971. And um, my dad had hired a, a baker and um, he said, you know, can clear that it just wasn't going to work. So um, one thing led to another and he, he let him go. And he comes home that night and says to my mother, you know, I've done it now. We got a week to go and I just fired our baker and I don't know what we're going to do. And my mom said, well, maybe I can help. And, uh, and so I don't know why she thought she should do it, uh, but she did. And she kind of laid the groundwork for really the, the, the key products that the Apple Barrel is still known for. Uh, that being pies, uh, donuts, uh, muffins, uh, fruit breads, um, you know, it just, oh yeah. so all those great items. And it was really the idea of a scratch bakery and farm kitchen. And she kind of laid, um, laid that foundation in the pies is what we've then since turned into more of a commercial and, and operation and, and, uh, but use the same basic recipe, um, you know, flat, so she, she made that decision. And then, um, about three years later, she had another heart to heart with my dad and said, if you don't find a new baker, I'm getting a divorce. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> she, she'd had enough. Uh, but she did, she, you know, it was really through her, um, getting involved in the bakery and creating this, this, uh, really popular, uh, new feature that we had, um, and all the recipes that went with it. And, um, so she had a real major part as little as she planned for it. Um, you know, and again, she had at that time five teenagers in the house. I don't know what she was thinking, but, um, she did a phenomenal job and, and my dad to this day, you know, was, I mean, he passed a couple of years ago, but he certainly always appreciated, uh, what that meant and what she did. And, uh, but, um, yeah, it's, um, but yeah, you know, so that's not, was, it was not her plan. Yeah. Um, but she got involved in the business that way. My dad obviously grew up and, and, uh, was in the business his whole life. Hmm. So it, it, it's interesting because, you know, the dynamics of a, of a family business, sometimes you, you, you just have to pitch in and, and do what's necessary or what's needed at that moment to, right. to, make, it, to make it happen. Um, what, what kind of values would you say your, your parents instilled in you that you still carry with you today and throughout your business? Well, I think certainly, you know, just honesty, uh, doing things the right way. Um, also just, you know, working hard for everything. Uh, don't take anything for granted. Uh, you know, it might be, you know, kind of easy for someone to say, well, we've been around in the town forever. We're well known. I'm just going to ride that. They, they were never, I mean, they set the example. They worked, they worked hard. They were humble. They, 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 um, you know, didn't take anything uh, for granted. 
And uh, I think that that those values and they, they instilled in all of us, all of their kids. And uh, mm. and and again, I, I look at both my parents, my grandparents, the way they lived and and conducted themselves, and and you know just being honest and truthful and doing everything the right way and and uh, and being upfront with people and and um, you know and recognizing. That, you know, we're part of a community, um, and we uh, we owe as much to the community uh, as as maybe we've contributed. That certainly they've been supportive over the years, and sometimes maybe those relationships haven't been as strong as we'd like. But overall, it's 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 worked out well, and and there's a responsibility that goes with that. So I guess the other thing is they instill is a responsibility that you have to to give back and uh, be part of the community and. Uh, and never take it for granted, and um, you know, and and look to where you can where you can contribute and and add va- add value for for now and the future. A lot of people think, you know, a family business is easy. I mean, you're what? What did you say? It's seventh generation. I'm the eighth generation. You're the eighth yeah. generation. I mean, what do you think the the secret of the success has been? I think it, you know, go back to what I was saying in terms of uh, just how you build yourself in the world. It's, a, you know, it, we, we've been fortunate that, um, you know, our examples have been set with us with our um, previous generations of, of modesty and, and honesty and truthfulness uh, and, and spiritually a, a strong belief. Um, and I think given the nature of our business, which is very vulnerable to weather and things that you don't control. And I think that's been important. And any farmer will tell you that you have to have a fortitude and and, uh, and a longer term view of things because you can get very frustrated and, and devastated through anything that might happen with a storm or whatever it might be and mm. you know lose your crop in a, in a moment's time and have to pick yourself up and move forward. And, and I think the, the the family over the years has demonstrated the um, you know the strong belief um, and the for the the resilience to overcome whatever obstacles and if we look back over the history of the, of the business there's been a number of major events that happened that uh, caused the business to have to change and pivot and and uh, and they've been dedicated and I think that finally I, I believe that the family is very much um dedicated to the the land and preserving the, the the land for you know for future generations and i think that they you know it's a common held belief among the family um and and i think that's been our been what's held us together is you know both a sense of place but also as you know a strong uh, faith foundation absolutely it's important to have and you joined the family business officially in 1980. What was your first job um, on the property, so to speak? Uh, I came in in the orchard as a really assistant orchard manager. Uh, with that time, we had an orchard manager, and um, it, as it turned out uh, that the orchard manager left uh, within a few months, and it was really it wasn't my my causing. He just had other things that came along, and he he chose to leave and. And so I fell into the, the orchard manager position, um, and uh, from there I just kind of kept moving along in terms of uh, taking on more responsibility. Uh, became director of production, uh, 
for a while in the um, uh, mid 1980s. I, uh, you know, we we kind of took the idea of a functional approach to the organization. So uh, we looked at the golf course and the agronomy, uh, similar to the orchard. Um, horticulture, and so I um, oversaw the greenskeeping function for our golf courses, which for me was a completely new uh, new, new area. Um, I did not become an expert in turf growing, um, relied very much on good superintendents for that. Mm-hmm. But the idea was to try to uh, see if we could utilize our resources better. Um, you know, we've, it's like every business, you, you try different ways, and we decided and learned that you really have two different businesses and you need to focus uh, because even though there's some shared resources, there is also enough difference that you need to, you know, uh, have really the golf and kind of look at that as a single business and then the farm as a single business. So, um, you know, after, after that, I kind of uh, took over as sort of director or vice president of the farm operations, which included the retail. So I got into the retail uh, in addition to the production uh, and then uh, in more recent years, uh, got more involved in the commercial bakery uh, end of it and that production piece. And our retail is, again, an animal in itself. And so we kind of have a, a more um, uh, aligned management um, organization um, manager of the retail. So um, all along and throughout, I've, I've, I've kind of always been if you will, a spokesperson for the company. Um, so for a while I was overseeing marketing and I've always been involved with the public relations piece. And um, again, uh, whenever there's a call from the media, I'm usually the one that's speaking with them. Um, so again, lot I've, I've kind of said, I've done everything here on the farm except uh, teach golf. And I'm glad of that because you wouldn't want me teaching golf. <laughs> yeah, I'm right there with you. You don't want me teaching golf either. So, <laughs> so okay. So take take me through your daily routine. What what time do you get up in the morning? I imagine it's very early. Yeah, I'm usually up by you know four four thirty. Um, and I spend some time, a quiet time, just sort of uh, reading and reflecting for a couple hours, and then I'm uh, in usually by seven thirty uh, and make the rounds through the orchard, just check in. Uh, sometimes I'll ride through the orchard just to kind of check on a few things and work my way down into the office. And uh, so, I mean, a lot of my job is is at the office and, and um, not so much in the field anymore, but, uh, um, you know, I do get out quite a bit because there are certain times of the year where you have, to, you do, you literally have to get out in the field and see what's going on and, and then work closely with, um, you know, we have, we have an orchard manager and, uh, um, you know, our pick your own. We have an assistant orchard manager that kind of oversees more directly to pick your own. Um, so there's, there's, you know, and then we have the packing, which is another function uh, comes under the orchard. Um, yeah, so it's it's varied, um, but uh, that's what makes it interesting is that you um, really don't know when you come in if you know there are going to be some things that happen you don't expect and you have to react to it and and deal with it. Um, and that's what makes it interesting. And I, every what I've said to everybody is that uh, a growing season is always unique, mm. and um, every year is going to be different in some way. And you're going to have to rely and pull from what you've learned, but also recognize that not everything is going to be exactly the way it was. And so you're going to have to be 
be flexible and adapt as well. And, um, and that's just part of it. And I think that's to me was what makes it interesting is that you, you know, you can't get bored. I mean, that's one of the things that with, with farming is you can't get bored. Um, you can get frustrated and, um, you, you hopefully will never get discouraged because, you know, if you get discouraged, it gets, it's pretty tough. Um, cause they're always, you know, I always feel you can always find a way through, um, and then again, one of the things I do rely on is is sort of that tradition history that I can go back and say, you know, I think it's tough now. Well, it was a lot tougher in, in other years too, and and we found a way through and, and and kind of use that inspiration from previous generations of how they worked through it. However, mm-hmm. however they did, and you just sometimes wonder how they did. Um, but it's really um, that helps. But again, it's the it's it's the Rap, rapidity of, of, of what changes that you have to re, you know be on top of too and anticipate and um, and be flexible and I think you know our organization you know is, has been really good that way and, and mm-hmm. I you know appreciate uh, all of our employees and how, how resourceful they are and how quick they can can adapt. The expectation for the unexpected right <laughs> yeah how, you know yeah, you just you just don't. You never know. know. Yeah, you know. You never know. Um, and, and, yet, and yet, you can plan, uh, and that's the thing. Is you, you. Um, I remember <laughs> my dad would always say, you know, you can't plan. I said, yeah, you got to plan. I mean, you got to budget, and, and he did. He, he understood that you needed the budget and everything. But you know, the fact is, you can kind of you can budget for a crop, and then obviously, if it's probably not going to be exactly what you budget for. But you got something as a basis to work from, mm-hmm. and you use you know we use history, we use um, you know we can go out obviously in the, after the crop is set, you go out and assess it, um, you know, and, and that kind of thing. So you're always updating, you're always forecasting throughout the year. You have to. It's a not. It's a you know once you get into the season, you're you're constantly reforecasting just to know are we on track or not. Yeah. And 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 that's no different for any business. That's how you have to operate. And, and what would you say that your style of leadership is like, you know, because you've got a lot of hands and, and, you know, people are doing many different things on the property. So how do you, you know, how do you run that? What is your leadership style like? I, I tend to, um, I, I try to delegate and allow people um, to make the decisions, uh, to feel Obviously, that they're 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 a key part of the operation. So, as much as I can, I'll try to stay out of the day to day. Certainly, we'll talk more on a strategic level, on a, on a more uh, goal oriented level, um, and teach. I mean, I'm at a point now in my career where I'm in a teaching role too, mm-hmm. um, taking the knowledge of I've had over you know 40 plus years and trying to teach the uh, the next generation um, in our workforce about things that, you know, uh, some of what I talked about, the things that you can't put on paper, you just have to learn and then, and then you, um, you know, you, you hope with your employees that you, you, they have the skill set to being able to um, uh, react and, 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 you know, have the basics, but they don't have to be the experts. Um, you know, they'll learn in a job. So I try to allow 
that learning as well um, and, and be there in terms of help make decisions rather than uh, if, if, if we're not clear and sometimes you just have to make a decision and you have to move move forward and then but also recognize that maybe that decision has to be adapted or it wasn't the right one and you got to change um, and and the other is just be supportive of, of all the other uh, areas that I don't necessarily directly supervise but be you know almost like a cheerleader a little bit of you know encouraging people um, just just uh, you know empathize with what the challenges they're going through and, and just encourage them to say you know we can get this done and you're doing a great job and um, yeah so it's it, it's you know, I think over anyone starts in their career, they're more hands-on, they're much more uh, involved in it and learning to step away and allow others to do the job, uh, teach them, um, but be be t- close enough that you can be there for, for, for help, for guidance, um, mentoring, so that you're not so removed that they, they feel like they're on their own and all you do is come in later and criticize. You, you know, I'm not one to come in and start criticizing because I recognize how hard it is and, and appreciate the work that goes into it because I did a lot of it as I was going through my career. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of stuff I didn't do, um, but recognize the skill and talent that others bring to the table. And, um, you know, mechanics, for instance, I'm not mechanically oriented, but we've had some really tremendously skilled mechanics over the years. And I just so much appreciate that skill. Um, so, you know, kind of a combination, um, but more importantly, not get in the way of allowing people to do their job and do it well. Some great advice. One of the things I love to talk about is success is really easy to talk about, right? Because, you know, even though success doesn't come easy, you've got to work hard for it. But, you know, that's the thing people see at the end of the day. But tell me on the flip side of that, tell me about a favorite failure of yours, was there something that you failed at, but you were so sure it was going to work? And, and and what was the lesson learned from that? That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I had lots of failures. Probably, um, you know, the a lot of them don't stick in the mind because you have to move on. Um, but I think it, you know, it might not necessarily a work related, but it's a um, industry related i you know i one of the things and i think it's important uh, i've always felt it was important that you not only work in your own business but you also uh where you can get involved in industry matters and try to help um the industry itself um Mm -hmm. so for many years i was on a um uh, a marketing organization for fruit growers in eastern new york and 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 uh, new england and it was actually an organization that my grandfather had helped establish um, back in the 1930s with other like-minded fruit growers who saw the need to market uh, market apples more regionally as opposed to everybody doing their own thing. And um, so I ended up uh, in the leadership role. And at that time, there was things going on that were changing. New York State was becoming... Uh, typically, in the past, uh, Eastern New York would be more of a fresh market apples, and Western New York was more processing. But really, in the 1950s, that started to change in the 60s, where they, Western New York started planting a lot of fresh market apples, and it became a huge 
producer of fresh market apples. And so New York really was moving toward unifying New York. And the, the, the commonality that used to be Eastern New York and New England wasn't there any longer. And so unfortunately, under my leadership, the organization uh, decided to go different ways. And that was a hard, hard place to be because, you know, you had a history of an organization and then to watch it kind of go a different way. And, and, um, and, I, and again, personally, having been, you know, my grandfather having found it, I felt, you know, I felt terrible. It, it felt like it mm. could have done more. And, and yet I also understood there were things that beyond any one of our control and we just had to deal with that. And so we had to pick up our piece, pick up the pieces and we decided in New England to stay together and promote New England apples. Um, you know, so we kind of took that disappointment and turned it into at least a new organization that could continue to do more of a regional approach to promoting. Um, so again, a, not a failure per se, but certainly a, being part of something that you, you hoped would go a different way and didn't. And then you had to learn how to, you know, get up and, and move forward. And, um, you know, I guess that's, that's just one example of, you know, how, working through it. I mean, quite frankly, the, the ride home from that meeting after we voted to disintegrate was a very lonely four-hour ride for me. Uh, a lot, a lot of thinking, um, soul-searching, but um, that's not uncommon. I mean, it's not uncommon in any business to have those moments where you need need to reflect and and and, and dig deep. And um, and I think that's what happens when you fail is that you you have to you know, reflect and learn and pick yourself up and go forward. And, um, and I think that's, that's just the way it has to be. Let's get to today. The property has 1,100 acres and the farm grows more than 100 varieties of fruit from June through October. And I, I was blown away by that number, 100 varieties. I Apples, I get, there are a lot of them, but mm-hmm. you have, there's more than 50 varieties of peaches and nectarines. Yeah, that's crazy. Why, why, are, why are there so many? I didn't know that many <laughs> peaches and nectarines can can happen here in Connecticut. <laughs> yeah, well, one of, one of, you know, why do you grow different varieties? Well, one of the things that you you, you do is you, you stretch out the season. I mean, you, you, you look to expand the season. So yep. in the case of peaches, our first, Varieties of peaches will start ripening in early July, and we're you know essentially have a, a, a twelve or thirteen week season, and so it's those varieties that because essentially a one variety is going to give you about two or three weeks of production and in marketing. It's a perishable crop; you have to market it fairly close to the time you pick it. Yep. Um, so it's really that's part of it. Uh, the other is that um, you, you know you. Each of the varieties have different characteristics as you like, whether it be flavor, whether it be a little more cold hardiness, whether it be, you know, a little bit more resistant to a disease, whatever. So, um, and with apples, a similar thing, you're stretching the season out, but you're also, you know, there's new varieties all the time. In fact, one of the biggest challenges in the apple industry today is there are so many new varieties hitting the market and it's, um, you know, it, it, it's hard to get a sense of, of which of the varieties are going to be the ones that are going to be really popular in 10 or 12 years 
Because when you make a decision, with a, whether it be peaches or apples, you're making a 20-year decision, 25-year decision. Mm. Uh, because a tree, uh, to get it to pay over time is you have to get that much time because you have really essentially your first eight, eight to nine years are, are some cost. And it's only after you get to that point that you start um, you know, crossing past your, your, your expenses and start making some profit. And then it's the last third of that life cycle that you're you're finally making the profit you need to make to uh, to weather all the other uh, very very variables that you, that you run into so um, anyways you, you you're always looking for those new varieties and planting those but you also have to recognize that you can't be that quick to change you have to have certain varieties you have that people come to learn and love and you they're going to keep coming back every year for those so you you find that balance of having some new varieties, but also having the traditional ones. And um, so you put all that in, that's why <laughs> you have over a hundred varieties for all of a lot of different reasons. And um, so, and what we found other than apples and pears, we really don't talk much about variety. Mm-hmm. Um, in the peaches, what we do is it's, you know, we basically have four types. Actually now, believe it or not, it's five types. Um, but the traditional peaches be a, a white flesh, a yellow flesh, a white flesh, nectarines, white flesh, yellow flesh. Um, and then um, we have flat peaches now, they, you know, what the people also refer to as donut peaches. Mm. Not a lot, but we have some of those. So it's, you know, you have your traditional round peach and you have a flat peach. And there's also white and yellow flesh. So what we'll, we'll typically market is a yellow flesh peach and a white flesh peach. And, you know, same for nectarines and, and for the flat peaches. And then there's another piece of a, a, a part about peaches to know is that you have a cling stone and you have free stone. So the early varieties tend to cling to the pit, and then later on they become free stone. And why is that important? Well, years ago when people did a lot of canning, they would look for, for the free stone peach because it was much easier to depit when you went to um, you know when you went to can them or jar them, put them in jars for the winter. Yeah. So. Um, you know, in, in California, for instance, the predominant peaches grown are, are clean peaches. And uh, whereas here we have our early season clean peaches and then freestone. Um, and people want to know that, too. So we kind of mark, uh, identify it that way as well for people. Every once in a while, you have a customer who is looking for a specific variety because they know it. They've learned, you know, for some reason they either had it and got to know it. And they want to know when you're going to pick, for instance, a Red Haven. Um We'll run into that, but most of the time we're talking about you know the, the yellow peaches, white peaches, that kind of thing. Mm. The apple varieties, though, people do know the varieties and they look for those. And so we 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 uh, definitely identify uh, what we're picking in season by the varieties. And like, as I said, the pears as well seems to be people oriented to pear varieties. What what is the um, this? Hopefully, this doesn't sound like a crazy question, but what is the oldest? apple that's been a part of Lyman orchards like has there been an apple that's been grown there from the beginning or um i would say probably the, the ones that have the that you know fit that that description would be the macintosh and Cortland. they're they're old time varieties they're not the oldest i mean you've got some heirloom varieties uh like you know baldwin um russet you know, when you get down into mid-Atlantic, you get into some of the um, you know, some of the other, I can't remember all the names, you know, Stamen is one. Um, you know, I forget 
what Thomas Jefferson's favorite was Spitzenberg or something like that. Um, I don't know all my, my heritage fries <laughs> like I should. But specific, um, but specific to Lyman, Lyman Richards, it's the, it would be the Macintosh and in Cortland would be probably the oldest. Uh, Rome is another old variety that we still grow. Mm. Um, even Red Delicious, believe it or not, is a fair, is an old variety. Um, and, um, so those are the ones that are sort of the core, if you will, that people remember. And then newer varieties have come on the scene. Most recently, the, the you know the one that's gotten all the publicity uh, has been the Honeycrisp. Yep. Uh, people are looking for that. Uh, Macallan, uh, a more recent variety, but again around for a while since the 1940s, 50s. Um, and that used to be you know the premier variety until Honeycrisp came along. And now you've got I mean, Gala's uh, a newer a newer variety, even though it's been around for a while in other parts of the world. But um, Gala just I think two years ago became the number one produced variety in the United States, taking over for Red Delicious. And because in, in in apple production, Washington State produces over half the apples uh, uh, for the whole country, and and Red Delicious has been their staple for years. But they've also been changing into new varieties, and Gala is one of those, and it became the number one variety two years ago. But it's um, again, it's it we're seeing more rapidly the introduction of new varieties, and I don't know where that's going to go um, because the industry is really kind of scratching their head, not knowing what's what to plant, mm. and um, and it'll be interesting how it shakes through. Um, but but you know, typical of of I mean, people are always looking for something new, and I think that's kind of what they're tapping into is these new varieties, and they're being promoted, uh, and people kind of get excited about them, hear about them, and they want to try them. Um, but then there are the tried and true, and for us, we're you know we we market three ways. So we we do the wholesale, uh, which I say have been done for many many years, and then re- we got into the retail in, in the late 1950s, and then Pick Your Own came along in the late 1960s. Mm-hmm. And so for us, it's the three channels, and, and really a fourth is uh, apples that we peel for pies, um, and that, that's becoming an increasingly more important part of our business too. But um, with the Pick Your Own, I think people will, they still look for the traditional varieties. And there we're looking for varieties that are going to last for four or five, six weeks. Yeah. So it's the earlier September varieties that we're, you still need quite a bit of acreage for because that's what people come, you know, once once they're ripe in September and they're going to keep coming for them. And then as the new varieties come along through the season, um, they're going to start picking those too. So uh, it's not unusual that people will, when they come out to pick your own in the fall, say in late September, early October, that they're going to pick five or six different varieties. And they are specifically are looking for those five or six varieties. Um, so that makes it kind of interesting and, and kind of enhances the experience for people. Interesting. You know, pick your own. I, I love it because, you know, there's that whole element of foraging and going to, you know, pick the apple yep. or whatever it is from the tree to your basket and then to your table. But yeah. it's triggered this thought that there seems to be a continually growing trend of the understanding that eating food that is local, food that is grown closer to home is better for you. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's the right thing to do. And it supports a whole ecosystem. Mm-hmm. The, Euro- the Europeans or other cultures around the world have had, have had this figured out for so long. Um, why, why do you think it's taken, you know, us as, as, as a culture to, to realize this? 
Well, it's, it, it's interesting. <laughs> What's your thought on you that? Know, I don't know how prevalent pick your own is in Europe, for instance. I know when I was in Holland, it was it, there was no pick your own with apples. Um, and it was pretty much a wholesale market. Um, and yet, as you, as you point out, within the towns, they, they had these you know shops and they specialized in, in sort of the, the, the local fruit and vegetables. Um, you know, I don't know if it was supermarkets and how they have been a prevalent way that, that Americans have shopped, uh, which means that you're getting uh, food from, you know, a larger region. I mean, what could be across the country uh, because of their distribution and everything. Um, so I don't, I don't know. It's, maybe it's because we just have never had those, those local shops in the local communities as prevalent as maybe they do in Europe. Um, but yeah, you're right. There is a trend back and, and I think pick your own has certainly been an element, uh, of that, uh, interesting when it first started, it was definitely a way that people saw to go out and save money, um, picking it themselves, they could save money and you still can, you're going to pay less at pick your own than you will in a grocery store, but, um, it's not necessarily seen as a bargain and, and quite frankly, not priced as a bargain as much as it had been back in the early days but it's more about the experience now and that we saw that really starting to take hold in the mid 1990s and, and and really through the 2000s has been um, a way to get out with the family and, and enjoy a day out or an afternoon out and in a hands-on activity that that everybody loves um, you know and I go back I always say that you know we always have welcomed the kids because in my mind that's your best ag education you can do is have the kids out there picking the fruit um, and remembering that because when they get older and we've we've seen it we've we've had uh, uh, parents come back who as kids were picking here and now I mean even even they they were um, their grandparents brought them and you know and, and so you multi-generation um, in that they're bringing their kids or they're bringing their grandkids because they they were here as kids picking um, so it's that experience that that they get and the hands-on, like you say, make that connection, and that and it really happens with pick your own as well as anything, and so uh, we've seen that as a as a key piece of our uh, attempt to uh, create a a destination to have people come to Middlefield because of all the various things we do here, in, including getting out in the field, picking fruit, and having that experience as a family. Um, you know, and then the retail, you know, it allows us to market outside of season um, and through the winter. Um, and um, and wholesale is important because you can't, I always tell people, you, you, if you go to a grocery store or go to a store and you look at a display and if you see five apples on the display, you're not going to buy the apples. They don't look, you know, you got to have a full display. So when we, when we have an orchard for pick your own, we have to have a full display of apples. Uh, and guess what? It means there can be a lot of extra apples. So um, for us, wholesale, while it doesn't drive our, our marketing decisions, it's an important piece. And we've done work over the years to try to create some, some niche markets through our wholesale, uh, you know, developing eco-certified program for our apples and, and peaches to um, help market to, um, you know, chains like Whole Foods that look for uh, producers who are producing in a ecologically way, sustainable way. So, um, again, I think it's, um, 
it's all about, you know, as you say, connecting better to the local food. And we're seeing that trend much more. Even, you know, the pandemic really reinforced it, but it's been going on for a while. And I think it will continue. Um, today's consumer is definitely um, looking at that as a very important piece of their their decision to buy whatever they buy. Mm, interesting. Yeah, you mentioned the, the, the pandemic. I think, you know, you, you touched on it earlier that Lime and Orchard's been around since like 1741. Obviously, there's been a lot that's happened throughout history in that time. But, you know, here we are, right? We're living it. We're, we're living through one of the worst pandemics uh, of our time. Can you can you take us through what went through your head when this became a reality and turned everything upside down? What, what did the organization do to to pivot or was it business as usual? How, tell me about that. Well, obviously, every we were no different than every other business that suddenly had this 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 totally unprecedented situation and, and needing to figure it out pretty quick. Um, one thing that became pretty clear early, uh, first of all, internally, we just need, you know found out and learned as much as we could in terms of what are the protocols that we need to put in place. Uh, and more importantly, first off, can we stay open? Uh, and and I will give the uh, the governor and the state of Connecticut a lot of credit that uh, they you know they definitely looked to where they could to ha- allow businesses to remain open as long as they could mm-hmm. they could meet the protocol um, that was critical um, for for us and and obviously any business was able to stay open uh, and you know so so learning the protocols starting to implement them right away. Uh, it was critical, but it, then it became pretty clear that um, that people, you know, despite being shut in, there was there was opportunity that they, I mean, the, the necessities, getting out and shopping, and for the for us, the Apple Barrel, we saw that people were looking at for that local store that they could do and, and go to and shop and feel um, a little more safe than maybe you know on a larger store. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so one of the things that we recognize with, with increased traffic is we need to provide more options than we normally would do have and kind of create more of a, um, a full shopping experience. So we brought in some chicken, some meat. We brought in some of the staples that people were looking for, paper supplies, you know, toilet paper, paper towels, you know, things that we never would have done, but we had to, or we, we saw the opportunity because that's what people were coming locally, stay locally, try to minimize their trips out of the house at the, at the time, back in March and April of last year. So we, we started making those changes, more ready-to-go meals, that kind of thing. We just, you know, we've been doing that, but we started promoting that more. And curbside pickup. I mean, people definitely were looking for minimizing their their um, their their exposure to, uh, to, to any kind of enclosed areas or whatever. So curbside pickup. So we, you know, we definitely introduced that as fast as we could. Um, we picked your own. We just never knew what to expect. Uh, but as we, again, opened up with strawberries, we saw that we were really getting uh, a lot of turnout. And, you know, the, the key, as we became pretty cl- pretty clear to us, is we're going to have to manage crowds. That's going to be our biggest challenge, managing crowds and keeping everybody safe. And uh, so really promoted seven days versus the weekends, which normally our patterns have been toward weekends, trying to promote people spread out the day spread out the week, 
uh, you know, having people come during a week. They had time. They were working from home or the kids were home from school. They weren't going to school. So there were things to do. They were looking for things to do. And getting out in the field and pick your own, they felt it was a safe activity. So similarly with golf, we saw the same thing happen with golf, where uh, initially the state uh, shut down and then the golf association, um, you know, was working uh, prior to that prior to when everything started to come down and shut down of putting together protocols to really social distance and minimize uh, contact and, and creating safe environment. So the state golf association appealed to the uh, department of economic development and said, look, we can provide a safe activity and uh, an exercise activity that people are looking to for. Uh, we can do it safely and, so the state, uh, after two days, decided that they would allow it as long as you could stay to the protocols. And we did. And, and we saw, again, a large turnout, people playing during a week, uh, weekends. Same thing. We, managing crowds became our challenge. Uh, and uh, so really for 2020, that's kind of how it went. And if you think back in the fall, where all the typical fall activities, such as you know the county fairs, the state fairs, they all shut down. And so people were really looking to do something. Um, and so we, you know, farms that, like ourselves that open up for, for activities, whether it be pick your own or, you know, whatever it might be, people were coming out to experience that. Our mazes, same thing. People were coming out to experience those. But our, you know, our obligation was to have, you know, be good with the protocols, stay on the protocols, uh, train our staff, make sure that we were, um, doing a good job that way. And and I would say that customers responded extremely well. And there were lines. We told people there are going to be lines. We're sorry. We're doing the best we can. Um, you know, we're, you know, social distancing in the lines. I mean, did occasionally the people not follow that. Yes, but they, you know, we tried to enforce that as well. And people were pretty good about that. But they, they were patient uh, because they just knew it. this was, kind of a they almost looked at it, it was a, it was a privilege to get outside the house and do something and they saw we were working hard our staff really worked hard and you know even though we had a the demand was strong the the stress that our staff went through because they knew the obligation we had to keep you know do these steps and keep the protocols in place to protect everybody it was never far from your mind it was the way you just thought every day and um, so, uh, you know, all of our key people at the end of the season were exhausted because it was, you know, while it was rewarding and extremely busy, it was like that stress of making sure that we did everything we could and, and, and the unknown of, you know, not knowing if, if, if something's going to happen that you're going to all of a sudden, you know, have to um, change everything. And, um, but again, people were good. They followed uh, the rules and, um, you know, and I think uh, reflecting back on it, it it, um, it was really a remarkable experience. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. There was like this whole resurgence of getting out into the great outdoors. I know right. for, for me personally, I dusted off my old mountain bike. You know, I'm, I'm here working from home. And then it was like, OK, I've got to get outside. And yeah. I took yeah. up mountain biking and I had my my mountain bike last year was 25, 27 years old. It's an old bike. Yeah. Tuned it up, got on the trails, and I couldn't find a mountain bike to buy. Everything was <laughs> was sold out. Now the supply chain has caught up to the demand. Yeah. Thank, thankfully, yeah. and, I, and, I, and I got a new bike. But um, 
you know, it, it, there definitely was this um, need for everybody to kind of get out, I think. Right. And right. so that's interesting. Um, are, are there things or lessons from this pandemic or challenging time that you will take with you later in life when we get back to a, a normal? Yeah, I mean, I think that, yes, the, the quick answer is yes, there are many lessons and uh, some that come to mind would, you know, the, the importance of communication, um, you know, it was tested more than ever last year because you really needed to be uh, clear in laying things out and people were asking, they were always asking about things and you had to be proactive in how you communicated everything you were doing. Um, so that became very clear how important communication is, even though you knew it before, but this was like, this was serious mm. uh, and needing to do it really well. So definitely taking that away of saying, don't, uh, you know, don't take communication for granted. You just, you know, you can't over communicate. Um, and then, you know, some of the specifics, I mean, uh, managing uh, the crowds better, you know, we learned a number of things that way. Uh, for instance, in our pick your own, we went to a, a pay them pick uh, scenario. We've been testing it um, in previous years on, on busy fall weekends, but we went 100% last year where we went away from paying by the pound and people would come in, buy the containers and go out and, and pick them. What was uh, remarkable about that is it, it cut the congestion down dramatically. And then when people picked, uh, they could just leave the field and go right to their right to their vehicle. They didn't have to wait. They didn't have to go wait in line to pay, and uh, just made much more seamless uh, operation, and also allowed for um, people to social distance and everything. So, um, so we decided this year we're going to do that. I mean, we're going to keep doing that, and because again, I think it created much better customer experience. It, it took a while for people were used to paying by pound because that's how we how we did it for years. Um, and we still have people asking about that, but for the most part, I think, you know, most pick your own operations have gone to a system similar to that. Um, we, we looked at reservations, decided not to, a uh, number of operations did, and I know that some are still trying to do it, uh, but we just decided we, we really didn't need to, and so we didn't. Um, but I think, you know, really just, you know, at the store, we looked at how we can avoid congestion inside the store during busy harvest weekends. So we went to uh, set up a tent outside that people could place their deli order. And then we would, um, you know, take it in, get it filled and then bring it out to them. So a little bit of a modified um, curbside pickup situation. So looking to do more of that kind of thing during our harvest period. So um, carry some of those forward. Um, people have definitely become more tuned into um, using the internet to, you know, whether people buy groceries or whatever. I think there'll be some elements of that. And then certainly, you know, you think about it, uh, just conducting business and, and, you know, whether it be Zoom calls, Skype calls, whatever, the, the efficiency of being able to have meetings. Um, you know, you, you can't replace the in-person meetings, but for a large degree, a lot of your meetings can be done remotely. And it, um, is a much more efficient. Uh, this past fall, winter, you know, it's not unusual for fruit growers. Well, it is a time that fruit growers have a lot of fruit grower meetings that they're participating in, usually attending. Uh, this year, everything was remote. And uh, I actually participated in more grower meetings this past winter than I ever would have. 
um, just because, you know, the physicality of needing to spend a night over, you know, and, and that kind of thing, you, you don't have that any longer. So I think that, that a number of those things will stay. Um, you know, we'll probably have some kind of a hybrid as we get back to normal where in-person meetings for some of it and then remote for other other meetings. Um, so I think, yeah, definitely um, kind of rethought how we work, uh, what we need to do our work. Uh, and um, I think that's going to have some, not only for us at Lyman's, but also across the board for all businesses, a pretty dramatic impact as we look ahead. What can visitors expect this year? What What is new at Lyman Orchards? Well, we um, last year we, we um, uh, took over the food and beverage at the golf course and really promoted our 1741 pub and grill. So um, a full season now of different activities we've got with the 1741. Um, we're going to be building a new deck at the, at the clubhouse. Um, we've had some delays in getting it started, but we're hoping by uh, early September to have that. Um, so I think, you know, having a really good dining um, venue here on, on the farm is, is kind of new from last year, but certainly as people come out this year, they'll, they'll, it'll be an enhanced experience there. Uh, did a lot with um, special events with um, live music there, we do comedy shows. So a number of things for people to do besides just go to Clubhouse for golf. You can uh, definitely go for, 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 for a meal and, and entertainment as well. Um, you know, we've done more, we're doing more activities. Uh, we've got some, uh, you know, petting farm activities going on this year. Um, and um, we'll be launching, relaunching our hard cider. Uh, expect to have that out in July. Uh, been a couple of years since we, we were on the market with that. So we're pretty excited about that. Um, yeah, and just the uh, the mazes this year, I think we've got some great themes. We have the uh, Arthur, which is celebrating 25 years. Uh, um, we've got that going on for our sunflower maze, and then we've got a rock and roll theme going on for our corn maze, and that should be a lot of fun kind of celebrating the 70s. And, and so that, you know, I, very uh, different uh, venues of music during the 70s. Um, uh, so we're going to really promote that as well. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, getting somewhat back to normal, but, uh, there'll be some of the changes that we put in place last year, like our pay and pick and stuff that people will see this year. Um, but uh, again, experience should be really, really good for people and very, you know, we've got a lot of special events. Uh, we've got a director of special events who's doing a phenomenal job just bringing in small events and activities and uh, it'll be the restaurant or around the store. Um, we, we introduced ice cream last year to the store and, and that's been popular and we got that going on and when people pick uh, on their receipt, they get a free ice cream cone for the apple barrel. So, um, value add there for picking and then get down to the store and have a great soft serve ice cream. Um, yeah, so we're, we're ready. And we are ready too. So final question, if you could go back and give your 22-year-old self some advice or your 18-year-old self some advice. Knowing what you know now, what would it be? Well, I guess um, I can – people who know me well will say that, you know, uh, sometimes I can get stuck on way of doing things, be more open, 
And despite the fact I think I've been pretty innovative, I probably could have been even more. Um, so if I gave myself advice from a younger age, I would say just be open to even more, uh, be willing to try things. Um, and, you know, it's that balance of trying to um, kind of turn things upside down and that disruption and the discomfort that causes, but also uh, what that does to move the organization forward. And yet at the same time, the importance of keeping um, some consistency, because at the end of the day, um, your customer experience is going to be as much that and how you consistently deliver as you as you are also introducing new things and, and new innovations. So I guess my advice would be just continue, you know, to, to be more open, always looking for, you know, for take the suggestions that people give you and be more open to it rather than say, no, that can't be done or whatever. And uh, like I say, despite all that, and uh, we've had to change and we've, we've, we have changed. So it's not like we haven't done a good job, but um, you can always be better. And I always look at it that way. You can always continue to improve and, uh, and just be much more open and um, engaging. Excellent. I feel that is a, a really great place to, to leave off. You've been super generous with your, your time today. So I want to thank you. Um, and if, if people want to follow you and the property, um, we'll put all that in the show notes, but limeandorchards.com. You're also active on, on social media. So yes. we'll, we'll be sure to share those links as well. Um, any final words? No, Derek, I appreciate it very much. Uh, it's, it's, it's always, you know, fun to kind of reflect back and, and, um, as you say, this past year is, is caused a lot of soul searching for, for all businesses and, and, um, and we're just anxious to, um, to kind of what's the next chapter, next chapter is. So we're looking forward to the future. Yeah, absolutely. Same here. Well, thank you very much, John. I appreciate it. Okay, Derek. Thank you. That's John Lyman, Executive Vice President of Lyman Orchards. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. And to find out all about their events, the pick your own season, or to book a tea time, visit LymanOrchards.com. Upfront is brought to you by Mason, an integrated brand communications firm located in Southern Connecticut that provides communications ingenuity through advertising, public relations, social media, digital, and media services. To learn more about us, visit mason23.com or send an email hello at mason23.com. This episode was produced engineered, researched, and designed with help from Jackie Lightsey, Eliza Gladwin, and TJ Tower. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next month. Take care.